a Telsquare Media of Southeast Wyoming podcast. KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. You're in tune with the Weekend in Wyoming program. On the phone, we're talking about a recent report on missing and murdered indigenous persons in Wyoming. I have Emily Grant with the uh, University of Wyoming Survey and Analysis Center. I also have State Senator Affy Ellis on the phone. Good morning. Good morning. Now, first, Good morning. Now, first of all, the report, uh, let's give a little background here. As I understand it, this grew out of a, a task force that was formed here in Wyoming uh, not not too long ago. Do I have that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, tell us about the task force. When was it formed and, and what's going on with that? Hello? Sure, so... Um, the task force was created um, in 2019 in um, directly in response to a awareness raising initiative that was um, spearheaded by a student organization at the University of Wyoming called Keepers of the Fire. They organized this community event to um, raise awareness about missing and murdered indigenous persons and families from um, across the state who have experienced loss, advocates and friends um, came to participate as well as Governor Gordon. And it was during um, that awareness raising event that Governor Gordon um, said that he would create a task force to look into the issue in Wyoming. Why, uh, why, why do we need a task force for this group of folks in particular? Is the problem a lot worse or a lot more prevalent among um, indigenous people in Wyoming than other folks? Either one of you. Yes. Yes. So I can take that too. Um, yes. So um, there's been a, a grassroots movement that has um, been going on um, starting in Canada, coming through the U.S. over the last five or six years to um, raise awareness of the problem. So the issue um, of missing and murdered indigenous women or indigenous people is not a, a new issue, but it has gained a lot of attention in the last um, five or six years. And um, part of the problem is that there isn't a lot of um, data. It's hard to track. Um, things aren't being recorded. And so it's kind of went unnoticed, and it's because of the, the family members and um, advocates, you know, raising up their voices and demanding attention to the issue that um, it's coming to light now. So that was um, one of the first goals of the task force was to pull together the information that is available so um, we can begin to understand the prevalence of the problem in Wyoming so we can address that. Now, although the report does focus on Wyoming, this problem is not limited to Wyoming. It's a problem at least across the western states. Am I right? Yes. Um, indigenous people are um, disproportionately going missing and um, victims of homicide all across the country, across North America. Now, from the report, uh, one stat that jumped out at me, I found this astounding, uh, was that indigenous people in Wyoming are about 3% of the population, but thought to be 21% of the of the homicide victims. Do I have that right? That's correct. So that's what we mean when we say that there's a disproportionate impact. Um, 
So, you know, they're 3% of the population, so if everything was the same, we'd expect to see them accounting for 3% of the homicides. But um, they are victims of homicide at a much higher rate, making up 21% of the total homicides in Wyoming over a 20-year period that we assessed. And Emily, I, I read some information, and you can jump in on this either way, I read some information that some folks think even that 21% figure might be low. Do I have that right? That is correct. Um, so the way that we assessed the number was going through um, the Wyoming Vital Statistics records. Mm-hmm. And the cause of, looking at the cause of death as homicide, while um, talking with family members and listening to voices nationally, we know that sometimes when the coroners um, or medical professionals make the, determine the cause of death, Sometimes it's believed that um, they're not getting the homicide designation. You know, perhaps it's that exposure or, um, you know, different causes and it's not being listed as homicide. So there is reason to believe that the number could be even higher. Now, in going through the report, and either of you jump in, uh, jump in with whatever that you care to comment on, or if I have something wrong, just go and say it. Um, but I, I found a couple of prevalent themes in this report. A couple of a couple of real issues. It appears one, frankly, was with uh, my brethren in the media. Some of this stuff is not uh, maybe not being reported or not being fairly reported. Is that accurate? Yeah, so a big focus of our report, in addition to, you know, just getting the counts of, you know, how many people are murdered, how many people are missing, um, we also wanted to look at media portrayal because that's something that we had heard um, from the families is that that this is happening and no one's noticing. And so we decided to um, look at this by assessing um, newspaper articles in Wyoming and doing a a keyword search, looking for all the articles that talked about um, homicide, murder, missing, you know, those types of words, and then looked at the victims um, and the characteristics of them. And uh, we found that Native American people were less likely to have an article written about them, um, and Native American females were the least likely to have an article. We only found articles about 18 percent of the indigenous female homicide victims. I also read that some of the coverage sometimes tended to be a little, I don't know what word to use, I don't want to use the word lurid, but the, they were covered differently than other homicides. Is that is that something you found in this report? Did I read that right? Yes. So the first way, the, we looked at it was seeing just if there was an article present or not. But then of the articles that were present, we wanted to look at how the people were described in the article, like what kind of words were used to talk about them, the crime, the circumstances. And um, we found that indigenous homicide victims were more likely to have um, violent language used to describe the situation, so really graphic depictions of um, the circumstances of the situation, the um, the body, the crime scene, and we didn't notice that in articles about white people as often. And often there were um, negative character framing. So this is like 
information about the victim that isn't directly related to the crime itself. So talking about their status in the community, maybe um, that they were unemployed or they had a history of drug abuse or something like that. It was more likely um, to be in articles about indigenous victims than white victims. Senator Ellis, as, as an indigenous person, have you noticed this trend yourself? Is that something you're aware of or, or what would you say about that? You know, I, I wanted to thank Emily for being on the line, and she deserves a lot of the spotlight on today's show just because she was the one doing the work, and, and along with her colleagues at the University of Wyoming. And um, this report is really important. I think, as an Indigenous person, this is something that we all kind of thought was out there, but seeing some science and some study behind it kind of verifies what we know. So I'm um, just really thankful that we've got some information to work with. And along those lines, this report is unique. Um, you know, other states have looked at the missing and murdered indigenous person issue, um, have produced reports, but this is the first one I recall talking about media coverage. So I just am really thankful that we have the, the information. It does sound like, though, that it, it confirmed what you already sort of thought. Is that right? Yes. I, I would say that most people in Indian country have a feeling that, you know, their lives don't matter as much. And it, it's not only from maybe necessarily, and this is, again, on a broad scale, you know, are are those cases being investigated as vigorously as they need to be? Are they being portrayed in the media as they should be? And I think that that was always kind of a gut feeling that a lot of people who particularly have lost loved ones have had that was that there was unequal treatment. And so this report is very, very important for us to be looking at. Now, the other big thing that jumped out of me reading this report was that a lot of times, and this is for either of you, whoever would care to comment, a lot of times people were hesitant to report these crimes because there's a bit of a distrust of law enforcement. Is that accurate? This is um, Ms. Zappi. I think that there's, there's a lot of things that contribute to lack of reporting. Years ago, um, the Obama administration um, started a program called the High Priority Performance Goal Initiative. And their focus was, um, in part, to look at some reservations with incredibly high crime rates and see if they could um, do something about that. And so along those lines, they increased law enforcement presences at four reservations. And at Wind River in particular, um, the initial thing that was very startling that we saw was people were very hesitant to call the police, not only because of maybe some distrust, but because they were so understaffed that there was a sentiment that why call the police, no one's going to show up anyway. So after they saw an increased law enforcement presence, people actually started calling the police again, and um, crime started going down. But um, distrust is certainly a, a part of it, and not just from a law enforcement perspective, but where those cases are heard. Um, because of federal jurisdiction, years, of, hundreds of years of laws making it very complicated, those cases often aren't prosecuted in their community. They're done in federal court, and so there is that disconnect with um, you know, jury selection and just venue and places where people go to see where justice is happening. But if I'm hearing you correct, uh, maybe some progress has been made with this whole thing over the past few years. Would that be accurate? I think that um, having a very strong spotlight is very is an important piece of this discussion. But, you know, from a state perspective, we're doing what we can and what we know to do to try and um, do a better job of reporting, but certainly there are going to need to be changes made at the federal level. And so, um, you know, if, if you look at the timeline of our country, some of that progress might be due to slowed. But I think in my lifetime of working on these issues, I have seen progress and I, I think we're moving in the right direction. But it will take years of vigilance um, action, or not vigilance, but just vigilance and, and commitment to act 
to see some changes. So reports like this definitely help keep the momentum for those kind of efforts. Now, looking through the report, I'm looking at Appendix C here, some of the findings from stakeholder interviews. Uh, again, why sometimes crimes were not reported. There were some other issues, things like no cell phones, no computers, um, the fact you might have to drive a long way to make a report. So there's an isolation factor here as well. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> so um, that was one thing that we heard a lot is that, you know, there's an effort to get forms online and then that's going to be more accessible for everyone. And that's not true um, in some locations when you don't have reliable internet connection, um, you know, or the cell phones or whatever. It actually can make it harder than just having a paper form available. So how could we address that? What could we do to make uh, filing these reports easier, uh, say, for some of the more uh, more isolated residents on the Wind River Reservation? Is, is there a solution? You know, I, I think that... Right out, Emily, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, Senator Alice. <laughs> well, from our perspective, certainly on the Select Tribal Relations Committee, um, we're in the middle of a legislative session right now, but we will be looking at interim topics that we're going to take a further study on during this 2021 year. And I know this report is uh, very important to us. We want to make sure we're following up. And so I think some of those questions we'll be having with um, the very people who helped develop the report, as well as those on the other side of it who provide the forms and see what we can offer as, as potential solutions. But I'm sure Emily has given this more thought. Emily, go ahead. So I don't want to duplicate what Senator Ellis said. Unfortunately, there seems to be an issue with the connection on my phone. So um, I'm not sure if this was already said or not, but I think that a really great idea um, that we've discussed and it was brought up from the community um, is having a advocate or, you know, a, a person that is well-versed in the system of everything that needs to be reported, which organization to talk to, which forms that need to be filled out, the certain timelines, um, someone that is familiar with that process that can work directly with the families when they need it to help guide them through that. Now, again, I'm looking at some of the report findings. Uh, how can government in Wyoming help tribal members and tribal communities solve, find, identify, or bring closure to families of missing or murdered uh, loved ones? There are quite a few recommendations here. Uh, a couple of them kind of touched on what you mentioned already, but there were some other other things brought up here in this report, and uh, some of the things were relatively simple, like seeing the governor listen to the story of a tribal member losing a family member and deciding to take action was good. Sometimes the first step, I think, is is to admit the problem exists, and maybe we've taken some steps, certainly in that regard, with this report and this task force. Um, if I'm reading the report quickly or correctly, certainly a lot of work left to be as as, as uh, left to be done. Uh, Senator Ellis, of course, is, as you know all too well, we're in a tight budget situation. Does that impede these kind of efforts, or are there things we can do that, uh, despite the, uh, the the current revenue situation? Well, I think, you know, as I read that um, recommendation, I thought it was a good idea. One criticism that is a fair one that we are on the receiving end of often is, you know, have we reached out to the tribal councils to see what their reaction and what their perspective is? Right now in Wyoming, um, through our budget, we fund two positions to provide for tribal liaisons for each tribe. 
And throughout the years, there have been efforts to consolidate that to one. And I know Senator Case, who represents the reservation, um, has been a very strong advocate for ensuring that both tribes have their own liaisons. But I think the question will be for our, our tribal counterparts is, how do you see this um, being effective? You know, I think there's a lot of value in maybe looking at um, each of the tribes and saying, do you want to fund your own position within your own government, within your own representative? So it has less of an appearance of being a state position. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, uh, you know, despite our revenue picture, we should always be open to doing what's right. Um, you know, we, we've been year, blessed with years of uh, great mineral wealth. Um, so I think that some of these um, budget issues can be resolved, but those will be the questions I'd like to examine with um, both tribal councils, um, just to make sure that if we do have these positions available, that we've got the right people and the right structure in place. And that's, in my view, not always necessarily provided by the state. Now, looking again at some of the recommendations in the report, collaboration between the DCI cold case team and the BIA cold case team. I would assume as a layman, for example, that would not be especially expensive. It's just a matter of setting it up, right? Well, a few years ago, um, right as the governor was forming this task force, and I, I do want the governor to receive some acknowledgement for this tremendous effort. Um, you know, I was at the lunch where he, he was called on to, to form this task force. Um, he, without hesitation, you know, welcomed the opportunity, took action, put some community, community members as well as his executive team on the case to come up with this task force. And so he deserves quite a bit of credit. At the same time, the legislature, we were looking at um, changing our statutes. And so we did make some recommendations that were eventually passed into law. Some of those require state and local law enforcement agencies that are mandated in statute to work with um, other law enforcement agencies. And we added the word and tribal law enforcement and tribal. And by adding just those simple um, changes to our statute, uh, we've really tried to make that an encouraged part of, of how law enforcement works together from state level with um, tribal law enforcement, as well as the FBI and, and other federal partners. So if we know, have we seen any positive results from that yet? Well, like everything, um, 2020 was a, a year that we were hoping to maybe have some look back information, but it, it just was um, a bit of a, a challenging year. And Emily can speak to that with the task force as well. So, um, you know, I don't want to belabor the point that COVID was difficult for everyone, but I, at least from my perspective, I know um, we're all looking forward to the work we have ahead of us. And we're going to pick up where we left off and, and keep a very lasered focus on this issue. Emily, did you uh, did you find that to be true, that COVID was a big impediment to moving forward on all of this? This is the Weekend in Wyoming program. On the phone, I have Emily Grant uh, from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Task Force. We also have Senator Affie Ellis on the line. And we've been talking about a report that recently came out on the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous persons in Wyoming. And, and although certainly, uh, from what I read, it's a problem for both genders, the, the problem seems to be especially... Uh, severe among uh, among indigenous women. Is that a correct finding? E Emily, go that ahead. is correct. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, it's all indigenous people that are experiencing it at um, disproportionate rates. Um, but there's uh, definitely a, a big focus on indigenous women. Why, why is the problem, if we know, more severe among indigenous women? Do we know that? First of all, do we know? Do we know why it is? Or do we have any theories, Emily? So, uh, you know, from a data perspective, <laughs> I would say that we we don't know. There isn't a 
a concrete reason that we can point to with data. You know, I, I think that there are, are many contributing factors and each each case is different, but what's important is that each each of these cases is a person who really matters and they, you know, deserve the full um, justice in the issue and any type of prevention that we can do so that no more um, people are experiencing this at such a disproportionate rate is important. Okay, we're down to about two minutes left. I've been uh, asking questions based on the report and, and, and just what I know about the subject, but I'm not the expert on this field. You people are. Uh, is there anything we haven't mentioned that you folks would like to bring up that uh, maybe our audience needs to hear about that we haven't talked about? Well, does this Daffy to kind of, um, you know, offer some thoughts on your, your prior question, you know, for the last couple hundred of years, we've kind of had a mishmash of how we approach crime in Indian country. And it really started um, with this notion that tribes are sovereign nations and they're separate. And so back when we were forming treaties with these um, Indian nations, the U.S. government would actually have provisions in those treaties saying, you know, if you have white people committing bad acts on reservations and among Indian people, they were to be delivered back to non-Indian um, jurisdictions, either mm -hmm. state or federal. And so that kind of set this premise of who's in charge. And so um, over the years, um, the federal government has exerted more and more jurisdiction over crimes that happen in Indian country. So if you have a crime with, involving two native people and it's a defined major crime, you know, murder, rape, one of the more serious crimes, the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction. And then over the years, we've passed laws, Congress has passed laws, we've had Supreme Court cases. Um, they're given a racial crime involving either a non-Indian perpetrator against an Indian victim or vice versa. Again, the feds have um, criminal jurisdiction. But if you have two non-Indians, then the states have jurisdiction. And so when you look at these cases, you need to know the race of the perpetrator, the race of the victim, where the crime happened, and the nature of the crime in order to determine whether the tribe, the state, or the federal government has jurisdiction. So when it comes to missing per person cases, of course, you're missing key elements of who who's in charge mm -hmm. because you don't know if a crime happened or if somebody has voluntarily you know wandered away. You don't know where that happened, and you don't know who did that to them. So, of course, it's been become this perfect breeding ground for these cases to largely go overlooked because jurisdictions 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 can point to one another, and so that's been a, a huge effort at the federal level. Is how do you give tribes more say? and what happens over their reservations, and that's going to be an ongoing conversation. And to your point about it's happening... And welcome back once again to Weekend in Wyoming. I'm Doug Randall. On this segment, I have Cody Tucker with 7220sports.com. Cody, welcome aboard. You're newly affiliated with us in Town Square Media of Cheyenne. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, first of all, Doug. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, really happy to be here. Really excited. It, uh, you know, I started this thing in, in June of 2019, and uh, obviously we've been in some very uncertain times, and, and uh, getting on with Town Square just adds stability and longevity to something that I created, and it feels really good to know that, that it's going to be around for a long, long time. I think there's a lot of interest in UW Sports, big market for what you're doing yeah absolutely uh that you know when i was in michigan as a as a sports reporter people thought i was crazy when i came up with this idea because you know their thought is wyoming only has half a million people 
but they didn't understand that half a million people care about the Wyoming Cowboys, whether that's a little bit or a lot. So that's a whole state, and no other state can say that. Well, and we don't have Wyoming and Wyoming State, yep. Southern Wyoming. We've yep. got fo- one four-year university. People follow it closely. Uh, when they do well, people get excited. When uh, when a former Pope does well, like Josh Allen in the NFL, people love it. Yep. It's a big deal here. Absolutely. And, and people outside of Wyoming don't really understand it. You know, we're small but mighty, I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, you know, people have no idea what it takes to get to Laramie uh, on a day like today, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what it takes for us to go 45 miles is uh, quite a feat. So you're not going from Orland or Sheridan, you know, most times to get to a basketball game. It's just the reality where we live. So people do care tremendously, Absolutely. Now, seventy-two twenty sports for those whom it doesn't ring a bell for the elevation yes. of Laramie. Yep, the highest football stadium in Division One football, and something we like to take advantage of by reminding <laughs> people of that when they come from the lower elevations. That's right. Now, you mentioned the difficulty of getting to Laramie. How much is it a, a problem to recruit athletes to Laramie? Is that is that tough? I mean, I'd imagine it's not easy. Um, you know, it's the demographics are slanted a certain way. It's kind of Laramie's kind of out there on its own. Uh, I know we take a lot of pride in it, and it's like, you know, Wyoming's hometown, but for a kid coming from inner city Chicago, maybe, or, or Dallas, uh, it's a little different. But, you know, I think these teams, though, they're their own little community, mm-hmm. and they bond together, and they're buddies, and they're, you know, lifelong brothers. And, and you know, to be honest with you, Doug, there's not that many Division One opportunities out there, if that you is think true. about it. Yes. You know, and I covered sports in Houston, Texas, and all those kids thought they were going to Texas. They all mm-hmm. thought they were going to Texas A&M. It, there's only so many scholarships to go around. So I think we've been really fortunate in Denver. Uh, really picked up a lot of kids out of the Denver metro area that have really made a big difference at Wyoming. And Craig Bull, since he's been here, has made a huge effort to keep the Wyoming kids in state mm-hmm. that need to be here. So, Which didn't used to be the case so much. No. No, and, and you can't win with a whole roster loaded with Wyoming kids. You just can't, and we know that. I mean, it'd be a cute story, but it just won't work. So it is nice to keep the ones that, that should be here, Division One caliber athletes. Mm-hmm. That's key. What you're looking at, a handful of kids, but nonetheless, it's a Maybe. nice tie. Yeah, yeah, and also a great thing about Craig Bowles is walk-on program's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. He encourages walk-ons. To, I think 33-plus walk-ons have earned a scholarship under him since he's been here since 2014. So a lot of those are Wyoming kids. Of course, when a Josh Allen comes from Wyoming, Wyoming and does well. We've sent several notable players to the NBA. That does help with recruiting. Absolutely. Right now, it's so unbelievable still to this day. Remember back in the day, you turn on an NFL Sunday and be like, oh, there's a Wyoming guy. You know, it's amazing. Holy cow, I get to watch a Wyoming guy. Mm-hmm. Now there's 16 of them. Mm-hmm. It's harder not to find a Wyoming <laughs> guy on TV, which is just gives us all a sense of pride, of course. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a Wyoming guy first and foremost, so it does give you pride. And especially when you live outside of Wyoming and go, yeah, you see that guy? Yeah, yeah, I know where he went to school. He, he's well, from my a, state. Good chance people might even know him. A lot of folks know Josh Allen. Oh, Josh for sure. But yeah, a lot of even the the other guys. You know, Chase Rulie just got paid by Washington. Mm-hmm. And Marcus Epps had some nice plays in Philly, and there's just one guy after another, and it's so great to see. Tell us about yourself. You're originally from Michigan? Cheyenne. I'm from Wyoming. Oh, okay. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I'm from Cheyenne. uh, Graduated from Central High School and uh, went to LCCC. uh, Got my uh, journalism mass media degree at LCCC and then started this crazy ride. My first journalism job was in Warland, Wyoming, and uh, still went to every Wyoming game, by the way, which was a 10-hour round trip on Saturday. People do that here now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was brutal. It was brutal. Uh, But yeah, uh, and then ended up in Douglas, uh, spent a couple years there, and then uh, went 
to a newspaper in Houston, covered uh, Jalen Hurts, the current All Eagles right. quarterback, when he was in high school down there. And is he a good guy? Or? A great guy. Yeah. Yeah. And Alabama was on him like right out of junior high. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. the way it is anymore with the big time recruiting. Oh, man. Especially down there. Oh, uh, yeah. it, that's, I actually took a pay cut to go from Douglas to Houston. But Are you serious? Isn't that crazy? That seems impossible. Yeah. About an $8,000 pay cut. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. But I thought, you know, when are you going to get experience like this? Mm-hmm. And I covered probably 50 Division One football players. Looks great on a resume. It does. And it was great experience because people do care. <laughs> they care tremendously about high school football. Not that Douglas doesn't because they really do in their right. own way, too. But, but high school football Texas. in the South is almost a religion. Yeah. Friday Night Lights yeah. is a big deal. Absolutely. And the stadium was almost as big as War Memorial Stadium, the main <laughs> one I covered. And you'd be in the press box and they feed, they're feeding you like Chick-fil-A and there's big screens that show the replay and you're like, what is this? So how did you end up back in Wyoming? Then? Well, um, I can't, ended up coming back to Douglas after Houston uh, because my boss was sick and he, he begged me. So I went back to Douglas and then did a little radio for a while. I actually moved to Florida for 10 whole days till uh, our radio host got us fired. And uh, <laughs> back, <laughs> back to Wyoming we come. But I, uh, I got a job covering Michigan State University Athletics for the Lansing State Journal and mm-hmm. uh, lived in Michigan for two years. And my wife is from there. So it was kind of weird. We met in Wyoming, so it was kind of weird for to move back but it was a huge opportunity to cover the spartans and you know i covered tom izzo and mark d'antonio for two years and did you cover kirk cousins or i met him met kirk cousins yeah he wasn't there when you were no there. he got inducted in the ring of fame though at spartan stadium when i, I was there so great great athlete well he's done very well for himself yeah he was who knew he was such a great football player well fifth round draft choice he's <laughs> yeah. uh, he's made his money and made his mark right now in the yeah. nfl yeah. so so how's michigan state how's covering that different than covering the university of wyoming oh just there's a billion and a half reporters that cover oh, Michigan State. And then uh, after Michigan State, I actually moved on and covered the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, and uh, a million people cover the Pittsburgh Penguins, mm-hmm. too. So that's kind of the difference here. You get way more. Um, you get to know the players better. You have better, way better access. And very I thankful believe for that. that, man. It's so good to be able to sit with a player and not just talk about X's and O's, but talk about them as a person. Mm-hmm. And then you get to relay that onto the fans. And then the fans feel like they get to know them. So... It's been great in that regard. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, Doug, I didn't miss a Wyoming game for 28 years. Oh, really? And this was always my dream job. So I've always been fighting to get back. And people think I'm nuts that, you know, Michigan State's way bigger than Wyoming. The Pittsburgh Penguins are way bigger than Wyoming. But... That's not in Wyoming. Yeah, no, this is my dream. It's it's absolutely my dream job to to say that I cover the Wyoming Cowboys. That means the world to me. So you started this website, you said, in 2019. How did yep. that all come about? Um, <laughs> you know, I'd be sitting in the press boxes at Spartan Stadium and at PPG Paints Arena in Pittsburgh, and I'd be looking at these other guys who independently covered those teams, and I'd go, these guys aren't very bright. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're not very bright, and, and their interviews are not good, and I've read their stuff, and yeah. but somehow they're making it. Right. I can do this. Uh-huh. So, and you know, of course, uh, it makes me sad, but newspapers are definitely what newspapers are now. And, and Serious uh, decline. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because that's my first love, but um, I knew I better get on the wave of technology, which I'm not a techno, I'm not into technology whatsoever, but I thought I better get on this wave or, you know, I could be possibly left behind. So. Well, and the 
the days of waiting for the morning paper to yep. come out to check the scores. Those are over with. It's not that way anymore. Yeah, and my competitors over in Laramie at the Wyoming Tribune Eagle and the Casper Star, um, you know, they're pinched so hard. And now there's, what, Mondays and Tuesdays, they don't even print. Right, so if you think right. about it, if a game ends in Laramie on a Saturday night at like 11 o'clock. Which is not unusual. Uh, not unusual. That no, That is not coming out in the paper till Wednesday morning. Right. So, And I know they post stuff online, but... You know, there's a lot of people who still want to hold that newspaper, and I'm with them, but it's, you know, the grip is definitely loosening. So when it comes to, to covering UW sports, how do you approach that? What do you, what do you emphasize? Um, you know, my background is in features and storytelling mm-hmm. and getting to know people and the real in-depth stuff. Um, so, you know, I do the day-to-day beat stuff, of course, you know, what's right. going on. But, you know, we launched the site June 1st, 2019, and I knew right away my first story was going to be about Finnis Dembo. And we went down to San Antonio and spent the day with Finnis. Of course, a Wyoming great, won a championship with the bad boys of the Detroit Pistons in the 90s. Um, I knew I wanted him, and it wasn't just a, oh, Finnis Dembo. It was. I knew that Finnis had had you know a rough life after basketball. Right. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about that for those who don't know. Yeah. So Finnis on Easter morning. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the year, but on Easter morning he had a home invasion and uh, oh. a guy was busting in his house and he had his whole family in the house, including his uh, elderly mother and his nieces and nephews. And unfortunately, Finnis uh, had to shoot the the gentleman and uh, he shot and killed him and um, it's something that affects Finnis so badly to this day uh, he couldn't leave his house um, but it's a no-win situation the other right. end of that you're Sean Taylor and you're dead sure sure uh, you know and I, I tried to talk to Finnis a lot about that I said you know nobody would blame you and he says you know that that doesn't help that doesn't help me you know he doesn't own a gun anymore he has no desire he you know he told me over and over i took a man's life i took i took somebody's husband you know right. and it, it is a horrible situation and finnis is just lights up a room and he's such a great human being and he still is but man uh, what a what a struggle to go from winning a ring with the pistons to having to do something so unfortunate like that in the childhood home he grew up in where he still lives we oh, did the wow. interview about wow. five feet away from that front door where that gentleman broke in. it speaks well of him as a human being that he does have that moral quandary oh. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's not, you know, it's easy to be a gun-toting and say, oh, he broke into my house. Yeah, Yeah. I'd do it. But it's another thing when you actually have to do it. Right, talk to anybody who's been in combat, and I'll tell you about that. Sure, sure. So you, you, you sound like you get more into the personalities and the uh, that that the personal aspect of sports. Would that be an accurate summary? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the biggest story in my career, and I don't know if this name rings a bell for you, Doug, but uh, I did a story on Charles Rogers, who was a former former number former two former number one draft choice yeah. for the Lions. He was yep. a bust. Yes, and nobody had seen him in a decade. And uh, I found him. I found him in Fort Myers, Florida, working at a chop shop. And uh, my boss said, "If you find him, I don't care if he's on the moon. I will fly you there the next day." They flew me to Fort Myers. Florida, and I spent four days with Charles Rogers, and it was the biggest story I've ever done in my life. This is for me, because I'm curious. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, you know, Charles had a really public fall from grace, as you know. I mean, right away, you say bust. That's what a lot of people think of when they think of Chuck, but he uh, he just was going down a really dangerous path. Drugs, alcohol, all that stuff. Happens a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, and he had eight children with four different women, and, you know, once he fell out of the NFL, he you know, all of the, you know, I don't know about you, Doug, but back then when he got drafted, he's from Saginaw. He went to Michigan State. Then he gets Detroit. drafted by the Lions, and I go, wow, that's cool. High-profile, number one pick. Yeah, and I thought, man, that's really cool. He's got to feel on top of the world and i was just a kid back then right uh, but it wasn't now it wasn't a good thing um the leeches are still too close to you and that's now, what and happens when you're rich a couple of things about that from my perspective for one thing the lions had a string of number one busts: joey yes. harrington yep. charles rogers we could go on down the list yep. secondly that's just a dysfunctional organization it is 
It is. And when you come from a dysfunctional family in the first place and, and your buddies are your family and they care about your money more than they care about you. Uh, I found a dejected, sad, about 30 pounds underweight, which he, underweight? Which he was always slim. Right. Um, he didn't look like an NFL superstar to me when I found him. Uh, How sad. In, in, uh, and unfortunately, he just passed away about six, seven months ago. And, uh, I'm sorry. To, I did not know that. And I'm yeah, sorry to hear that. Yeah. It, it was just a, it was four days of, I, I didn't even know how big this story was going to be. And it was gigantic. It was all over the place. I believe it had three million page views in the first day and it was I all over the country it. and people cared and people loved him and they wanted him to come back to Michigan. And unfortunately, he just never could face you know his friends and family again so he kind of hid in florida and and just a really sad deal i feel for his kids and his family and and uh just the fans they loved him they never stopped loving him just because he made mistakes well i'm being a number one pick who and i use the word bust that's a little unkind but being a number one pick who doesn't make it we could look at ryan leaf he's had problems jamarcus russell well another guy did a story on any slancing was tony mandrich tony mandrich yeah, he was number two overall yeah I, I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah. I remember when he... When incredible they bust. About, yeah. And they called him the incredible shrinking man and all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was a tremendous player in college. And, and he, people... Well, yeah. He was, <laughs> he was shooting the juice. We all know yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, and it's unfortunate because they were saying, you know, is this guy... Is he the best player out this year or yep. not? And there was some serious dispute about that. We know now the answer was no. Well, and think about that draft. Oh, yeah. Barry Sanders. <laughs> uh, what? Steve Atwater. Um, Troy Aikman went number one to the Cowboys. Uh, how do you compete with that? Well, and when Tony got drafted by Green Bay, he said, I'm not going there. That place is a village. That's not even a town. <laughs> He didn't even want to go there, and he went on Letterman, and oh, he yeah. was so arrogant and cocky. That, that's not new. I read a book by Jim Brown where he talked about in his days in the NFL, if a coach was mad at you, they'd say, we're going to send you to Green Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Buffalo. <laughs> like being sent to the gulag. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it, it is, um, there's a lot of human element to these stories. Oh, yeah. it, it's tough. Um, these aren't, you know, I think it's easy as fans to forget sometimes these aren't cutout figures. These are human beings we're talking about. Um, human beings with feelings. Yep. And, and fans and writers can be very cruel sometimes. Absolutely. Unthinkingly. With, yeah, and with a guy like Charles Rogers, I think most people would say bust first and foremost, but then other people say, how could you blow $30 million? And a lot of it was because he kept getting pop-smoking weed. And people go, why? How in the hell can you? Why? You know, and it's a legit question. But, Ricky Williams. Yeah, but we don't, we're not in their shoes. And, you know, we just don't know. And with Charles, I did obviously extensive research on that story. And he didn't have a, a great foundation. We'll, well that way. And I would assume there was some substance abuse issues there. Oh, because yeah. if, if you can't yeah. stop smoking weed for $30 million, yeah. you have a problem. And then two, two collarbones, two broken collarbones in a row, then that's when the painkillers came in. Well, and, uh, that's a slippery slope, as we all know. But the, but the, the, the weed came kept popping him hot, which was getting him suspended, which was making the fans turn on him because it was like, dude. It was just like the receiver, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank, that just got cut by the Seahawks. Josh Gordon. Josh Gordon. Yeah. And, you know, as a fan, it's like, how can you be so dumb? Oh, no. Oh, no. The, I mean, the dude's got talent. Yeah. But it's substance abuse is a di- it, I, I believe it is a disease. Yeah. No, oh, I saw it with Charles for four straight days. And like any other disease, it may not follow a course that's rational and well thought out. <laughs> yeah. Very sad in yeah. a lot of cases. And just imagine throwing, you know, $30 million on top of that disease and, and not having a good family structure. And having everybody know about yeah, it. Everybody and knew. probably remind you of it. Oh, yeah. Every day. Getting back to the UW sports, Craig Ball is an interesting case. He came in from North Dakota State. Yep. Of course, was Carson Wentz's college coach. 
Um, he said when he came here that his um, his main goal was to instill toughness in the Cowboy football program. I think we see that reflected on the field, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And you have to be tough to run in his scheme because run is the key word in his scheme. Right. And uh, he's all about running the ball and playing good, tough defense, and he's done that. And, uh, man, the championships haven't been there yet. Um, I honestly feel like that's going to change very soon. I do as well. Yeah, but it, it, he has put so many kids in the NFL. Uh, a kid like Logan Wilson, who is a Wyoming tough to the to From the nth degree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A Wyoming kid who came in as a defensive back and is now roaming the middle of the defense for the Cincinnati Bengals. Mm-hmm. I mean, just uh, he he personifies Wyoming football. Mm-hmm. Toughness, nose to the grindstone, hand in the dirt. Uh, you know, I'm I'm here to play ball. Right, and that's what he did. What they like to call a blue collar lunch pail oh, attitude. Absolutely, as opposed to the superstar. Yeah, and you don't see that a lot on Craig Bowles team. Those no, guys you really are don't. Dan- dancing and you, you don't you don't see it. You <laughs> well, know. It doesn't fit Wyoming either. No, no. <laughs> I think Rocket Ishmael's son was probably the most flamboyant, if you want to put it that way. Right. And, and he picked up a couple personal fouls, and uh, Craig Bowles' face turned very red. What happened with one. him anyway? Um, he's just back in Dallas. Last I talked to him, he's uh, he was hoping to latch on maybe with Canadian Football League, but uh, nothing yet. So great kid. I, I hope the best for him too. And that's the beauty, honestly, Doug, about these guys. And I'm not just saying it to blow smoke. Because I would tell you if these kids sucked, mm-hmm. they're great human beings. Mm-hmm. They're all just so so good, you know. And and you didn't covering professional sports like I did. Uh, you didn't always see that. Uh, no, there's a lot of people in professional sports who are not exactly role models, right? But on the flip side too, when when you're covering the Penguins, you can hammer those guys. They make millions of dollars. Oh yeah. So yeah, if they yeah. slip up, you're in trouble. With absolutely, the media. absolutely. But, but college kids, you just can't and you shouldn't do it. Right. And uh, but these kids are just man. They're the you know Craig Bowl only recruits a certain kid and and he means it it's not lip service or coach speak these kids are legit human beings how do you think the new basketball coach is going to do men's coach love him i love him uh you know all he did was come in and pull the number one recruiting class in the mountain west wyoming's been nothing short of a dumpster fire for the last three years he pulls the number one recruiting class over zoom calls Oh, wow. You know, yeah, when you think about it, yeah. different challenges this year. Yeah, he got his first day when he signed on the dotted line was St. Patrick's Day. And we all know that's about the time the world went to hell in a handbasket. Right, right. All he did was go recruit the players that were on that squad anyway, face-to-face. Mm-hmm. The Hunter Maldonado, Hunter Thompson, you know, um, Kenny Foster, Quan Marble. The guys you wanted from last year's team to come back. Mm-hmm. He went and got those guys back and then just went on a whirlwind tour of pulling off guys, including a guy named Marcus Williams who's playing point guard right now. He's the fourth leading fr- true freshman scorer in the nation uh, really good and these guys don't lose a year of eligibility so this year is really a learning experience there's been some you know rough moments but they've already won more games than they won last year uh, and the the trajectory is incredible jeff linder is a very good coach very good man uh it's been a real breath of f- fresh air and ellen edwards was a great human being too don't get me wrong but that w- was the not program working. went south though. it wasn't working uh, yeah. on the court the product was just not there oh, a- after a, a time we had some success with the Cowboy basketball program. Yep. And fans, I wouldn't say they were spoiled, but they certainly had higher expectations. Yep. And it kind of all went south for a couple of years. Oh my God, did it ever. It, it just, uh, and the fans showed it. I mean, it was like a morgue in there. And, and I know I kind of pissed Alan Edwards off last year because I said, you know, if you know Laramie where the double A is, there's a, there's a cemetery across the road. And I wrote that there was more action going on in the cemetery <laughs> than there was in this building. And he, he kind of thought that was a low blow, but it, and it, maybe it was, but man, it was kind of the reality of the situation. It got, well, and it, even just here in Cheyenne, just 
talking with people, talking with fans. I mean, the attitude got real bleak. You probably couldn't even give away tickets, I'd imagine. Uh, it was no, brutal. It, it, was di- it was difficult, yeah. and that's something we do here. And, and there were times where nobody really wanted them. Yeah. Well, there, I'm a huge fan of sports, period. But there was times, even when I was just a Wyoming fan, that I didn't want to go over there either. How about, I, the, how about the women's team? What do you see happening there this year? Oh, they're just always, you know, I don't cover them as hard, of course, but I pay attention to them a little bit. They're just, they're steady Eddie. Yeah. You know, they're always steady Eddie. They play good basketball, good fundamental basketball. They, they had some good years there in the early years yeah. of the century, though. Yeah, Joe Lagurski was a real breath of fresh Rock air. Rock Springs guy. And yep. I, when I was in Rock Springs, I used to work with his brother, Bob, who was the high school basketball coach. I that was doing sense. radio out there. Yeah. Uh, Bob was a great guy. I used to call him up on the road at 3.30 in the morning. Dude always talked to me. I always appreciated <laughs> it. Well, in smaller towns, you build these relationships with people. Yeah, oh yeah. And, and in Wyoming in general. Oh yeah, Douglas feels like a second hometown to me. <laughs> I, I love that place. I always will. It always is a it special or? place. I do, but Cheyenne's home. and, and I. Been, nice. I've been fighting for a decade to get home, and so it feels so good to be here. And and my wife's a probation officer, so it's not as easy for her to find a job. And it's not easy for you know, as you know, it's not easy for media people to find jobs all the time too, especially ones they want and in desired locations. Right. Uh, so it, it, the stars kind of aligned, and we both finally ended up in Cheyenne, and it feels so good to be around family and friends again, and and to be home. I mean, I fought really hard to get back to Cheyenne for years, so it feels great. I love my hometown. I love this place, and if all goes According to plan, I'm never going anywhere again. I'll just go on vacations. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of touched on this, but I think it's something worth uh, worth hitting again. COVID, COVID nineteen. How's that affected yeah. college sports? How's it different? Uh, how is it not? How's it not? A better yeah. question, honestly. Um, you know, it, it was kind of embarrassing. I actually kind of broke down a little bit when they canceled the the season, the football season. Initially, I was doing a podcast, and uh, the, the tears started coming. It was you were uh, the only one I know. Yeah, it was. You know, it was one of. The, it was so embarrassing for me. I'm a big, tough, hairy, you know, tattooed guy, and uh, it was sad. It was sad, and it wasn't. And it wasn't just because of seventy two twenty sports it was how can wyoming football not play during well the and then when they did play the games get canceled yeah. there a couple it was, it was a tough way it was a it was a tough season yeah and tough in a different way than most of our players or coaches have ever experienced yeah and i do want to say I, I think this gets brushed under the rug too much these guys these players these coaches the support staff they got their brains jammed three times a week you know, COVID testing so that they could get out there and play a season. And, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, I feel like I'd be forever in debt to them for, for doing that because it would have been very easy to fold up shop and say, forget it. Let's let's focus on next year. And they did that. They worked their butt off. And as you know, a college kid not going to bars and not going to parties like they sacrificed a lot right. to do this for us. So uh, it meant a lot, but it, it's been bizarre. Um, I'm not I'm not able, unfortunately, to get a lot of those personal stories this year. And I think understand you know we 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 have zoom calls now and it's it's not quite the same no and and from what i hear from buddies when they're on the road with the team and stuff like that they they sit in their hotel you know i said man you're lucky you get to go to san diego this week to sit in a hotel well look at the nba with their bubble last year yeah yeah it's not fun i mean they're not having fun and it's all about work and that's what i love about jeff linder though he worries about his players mental health Mm -hmm. they've been here since like june and, mm-hmm. and they haven't been able to leave campus, and they have to quarantine, and they can only be around certain people. And they, you know, around Christmas break, he said, "I'm sending my guys home, and I don't care if they come back with COVID. I don't care at this at point. Some point. They you need live to life. go home. Yep. Yeah, they need to see their family. They can't even go up and hug their family after games and stuff. So, it's just a, it's bizarre. And I hope it's, I hope, I hope the light at the end of the tunnel is getting a little brighter.
Cody, we're just about out of time. Any last thoughts on UW Sports, your website, or life in general, or whatever you'd like yeah, to toss out there? I just hope fans check it out. Uh, we've been around for a while, and we've kind of we've gained a name, but now we're on a bigger platform, obviously, and I really hope people check it out. Uh, I think the future of Wyoming football, especially, is extremely bright in the more near future, but I think basketball is extremely bright as well. Uh, but football, uh, you know, spring ball is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're taking all of April. They're going to have a spring game in May. Do we think we're going to have a normal season this fall? Have you heard anything? It's probably too far out. Yeah, we just don't know. But I'm, I mean, I'm really hoping by September 4th, when the Montana State Bobcats come to War Memorial Stadium, things are normal and we can have a packed house. And and I really hope that's the case because there's nothing quite like a fall Saturday in the, in Laramie Memorial Stadium. So, Cody, real quickly for those just joining us, where can people find your website again? Well, you can hit us up on 7220sports.com. Uh, we have a free app, free newsletter. Please download it, and uh, we'll bring the news, man. A Telsquare Media of Southeast Wyoming podcast. Find more of our shows at kgab.com backslash podcasts.